chapter 11. I'm going to ask um, Ethan to put those uh, words of that song back up there, um, kind of about midpoint. I don't know if I, I want you to think about what we just sang, right? Think about the words. Think about the truth behind it. Think about what we were just proclaiming, declaring. Um, think about the very words with which we sung, all right? The, the, the very thoughts. If you can, jump back. Ethan, can you jump back about midpoint? Let's, let's kind of go through this uh, where Jesus died, all right? We're, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11, and we're going to kind of jump back through that. But do we, do we have Ethan? Is Ethan back there? No. Can we jump back to the middle of that song? <laughs> because I want you to think about this, all right? We, we've got to oftentimes think about this, not the, not the chorus, sorry. Let's, let's kind of move. Uh, go back one there, Pat. Let me see where you're at. <clears throat> no, no, keep going. <laughs> Next, that's, a, that's, that's the, the other song, all right? Keep going, all right? Keep going. That song, no, not beautiful name. The last song we just said. <laughs> I'm, I'm making it complicated, sorry. For those of us who are joining us online, we're going we're gonna to figure this out. But I want you to think about the words uh, of that song we just sang, right? To reveal the kingdom coming. Yep, wait, hold on, keep going. To reveal the kingdom coming into what? To reconcile the lost. The whole reason why Jesus came. And the whole idea, too, is to, to redeem the whole creation, Right in the midst of everything that's going on in the in in all of the chaos, with whether it's 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 uh, you know tornadoes or tsunamis or earthquakes or things like that, all of creation is groaning. You guys realize this, right? Romans says this that all of creation groans, waiting for the day that the Savior returns. That when Jesus died on the cross, yes, he died for a very specific reason, which was to redeem. All of creation, but the reality to redeem you and I through the blood of Jesus, all right? So we look at that, and then as a result of this, listen, when Jesus comes back, he redeems all of creation. In other words, the brokenness of everything that goes on. That's why we hear statements like this, that the dove or, or the lion and, and, the, and, and, and the lamb are going to be what? Together, Right? that the viper will no longer strike the heel of the human, that there are things that take place here that he redeems and he makes whole and he creates. So go to the next slide and, and let's think about what's going on here. For even in, her, in your suffering, Jesus saw where? The other side. He saw the hope and the, the reality of what was gonna take place through that. And so we play this out, but then jump to this next one. All right, not that part, sorry, that's the chorus. All right. All right, and the morning that you rose, all of hell then what? Held its breath till the stone was moved for good. Why? Because the lamb had conquered death. As we enter this week, I want you to think about this, right? As we enter this week, this is what we celebrate. And here's what's crazy about this. We celebrate his death, his burial and resurrection. But as a result, remember, not only did he come to redeem the lost, not only is he coming to make right with all of creation what has been wrong, but then there's this beautiful part here where, listen here, go to the next slide, Pat. I'll probably have to jump a couple. All right, the dead rose from the tombs, the angels stood on. Now go to the next one. All right, and what? The church was born. Who's the church? We are. We're not a building, we're a people. 
And that as a result of Jesus' death on the cross, the church was born. And the church is the very entity, the very thing, the very body of believers, the bride of Christ that is set up to do what? To take the good news of the gospel to those who don't know. That Jesus, listen, redeems that which was lost. And so if you have your Bibles, jump with me to Matthew chapter, or sorry, excuse me, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read through the first 11 verses. Now I'm going to warn you, we're going to be jumping here through the next couple chapters, but I want to focus on some things about who Jesus is. You guys know when we talk about this idea of a daredevil, right? Anybody ever heard of this guy named Evil Knievel? Right, you know, you've heard of Evil Knievel. Maybe if you're a young kid, you'd be like, "Who's Evil Knievel?" At which I would say, "Man, you've missed out." When I was growing up, Evil Knievel was known for doing all kinds of crazy stunts. Whether it was a motorcycle across, like whatever it was, twelve or eighteen buses, I can't remember. Some crazy astronomical number of trying to go off this ramp, motorcycle takes off, flies across, clears the buses, lands, wrecks at the end breaks bones. As a matter of fact, there's one, and I had to look it up. I was going to try and show the video. It's awful because it happened in the 70s where Evil Knievel literally jumps the Snake River Canyon in Idaho. If you remember that, it was like this little rocket ship thing that launches him off this ramp, clears it, drops with a parachute on the other side. But Evil Knievel was a daring person. As a matter of fact, if we were to say the daredevil, at least in my generation, maybe some of the older people, some of the younger people were like, who's Evil Knievel? I don't know right? But if you were to say, who's the greatest daredevil of all times? I would think Evil Knievel would be the first, the premier, the top. I don't know anybody else who would name anybody else as far as daredevil uh, thoughts. Matter of fact, it states as a result of his Guinness Book of World Records that he suffered 433 bone fractures, listen, by the end of 1975, now, for those of you who know, Evil Knievel went on and did a lot more stuff. But by the end of 1975, he had suffered 433 bone fractures. And I would say, man, that guy was crazy. That guy was a daredevil. He was daring to do all kinds of things to maybe get a lot of popularity. But I want you to think about this. A dare can be a foolish thing. It could be a funny thing. Sometimes it could be a dangerous thing. Like, I double dog dare you, Right? If you double dog dared somebody, then you didn't back down, whoever dared you to do something. But sometimes a dare can be a spiritual thing, a transformational thing, an invitation from God to exercise courage and trust in him for something you would never do unless he gave you the challenge. And so what I want to see today is that Jesus dared, listen, Jesus dared to break the mold or the expectation that the people had put on him or the people around him had put on him right? Jesus is coming into Holy Week, and there's, this, there's still this idea. As a matter of fact, as we look through Mark chapter 11 through chapter 14, there's this idea that Jesus is going to roll into town. He's going to run the Romans out with some great, victorious, awesome military show of power. He's going to run them out, and he's going to reign victoriously on the throne in Jerusalem over the people and they still don't get it. And Jesus, listen, as a result of everything that's going to take place here, Jesus dares or almost challenges, rises to the occasion and challenges the religious leadership within the Israelite people, within the Jewish culture. Right? 
And so here's the setting. Matter of fact, let's just read Mark chapter 11, starting verse one. It says this, as they approached Jerusalem, so they're coming towards Jerusalem, and they came to Bethphage and to Bethany. These are little towns right outside the city of Jerusalem, on the way to Jerusalem, so they would have come to Bethphage first, then to Bethany, then they would have passed the Mount of Olives, and then lo and behold, they would have walked into Jerusalem, all right? But it says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. So they went and they found the colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you untying that colt for? Matter of fact, kind of put yourself into this situation or, or, or this circumstance setting, right? You know that this colt is there. Maybe you know it, your, your neighbor, it's your neighbor's colt, it's your neighbor's donkey. They've never been ridden. And these dudes just show up and they untie it and they take it. Now, in today's world, we call that what? (laughs) Right? You just stole the colt, man. What are you doing? Right? But the disciples answered as Jesus had told them to and the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people, listen, spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead of Jesus and those who were following shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. So Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went to Bethany with the 12. Now, here's what I want us to understand and to know this setting. This is the beginning of what we call the Passion Week or Holy Week. When Jesus enters Jerusalem, it's his final week on earth. It's his final week before he's going to be crucified. He's facing a lot of struggles and difficulties. He's been teaching. He's been healing. He's been casting out demons. There's all kinds of great things going on. And as he's entering in, there's so much. Listen, there's so many things that are going on here. There are so many people that are packed into this area that are preparing to celebrate the Passover, right? Because why? It's the culmination point of hundreds of years, listen, of anticipation on the part of the Hebrew people and God's eternal plan, right? So here's what happens. Every year, as we get close to the Passover, people would travel back to Jerusalem. Why? Because it's a holy city. There's lots of significance there in in, in Hebrew and Israelite culture, knowing that's a holy city. The temple was there. There's all kinds of things. So they would travel back and they would celebrate Passover, Well, what do we know about Passover? Passover was the last thing, right? The last plague that the Lord sent on the Egyptians. That everybody who was covered by the blood of the lamb on the doorpost would be what? Passed over and delivered into freedom. And those who didn't would be killed. The firstborn would be killed. Right? And so these people would come in and they would celebrate Passover, the Passover lamb that was sacrificed. And they would sacrifice these lambs. And as they would sacrifice these lambs, they would do it in remembrance and they would acknowledge that. And they would have a special Passover meal and, and they would do all kinds of things that would take place here. And as they run into this, they're getting ready to go into Passover. These people would have been flocking to Jerusalem. 
So I want you to be very clear and understand what's taking place in this text. We're not talking about a few people. We're talking about a city that was packed full of people. That most likely that road from Bethphage to Bethany past the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem was packed, just lined with people. Like I try and think about this, put it this way. Anybody go to the Chiefs Super Bowl parade? Right? Packed, right? People everywhere. 8, 10, 12, 15 deep, sitting in buildings, trying to climb to the tops of certain roofs of buildings so they could get a better view, packing that whole area right across from Union Station, the World War I Memorial. I mean, we were out at the Royals Parade as well. I mean, just people everywhere, right? And so here in the midst of everything that's going on, we have this people lining in the streets, packed. They're, they're going everywhere. And as Jesus rides in on this donkey, what are they doing? They're shouting, right? Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're, they're acknowledging him as the Messiah is what they're doing. Here comes the Messiah. He's going to save us. He's going to deliver us from Roman persecution and and their overreach and the oppression that the Romans are placing upon the Israelite people. And keep in mind, that's exactly what the Israelite people had experienced in Egypt. Oppression and slavery, right? Working all kinds of crazy, weird jobs and building all kinds of things for the Egyptian people. And the Lord provides the Passover lamb and he delivers them, listen, out of Egypt into what? Eventually the promised land, right? He wanted to deliver them to the promised land right away, but the people were disobedient. But Jesus shows up in the midst of Passover. And the crazy thing is this lamb, the final lamb, the final sacrifice is going to be led to the cross. But listen, in the midst of that, he does some daring things, right? And here's number one. And I want you, if you remember anything, I want you to remember this, that Jesus brings salvation, listen, by riding into history and giving what the world cannot offer. See, the expectation of the world has always been one thing when Jesus says, I don't live by your expectation. I don't operate by your standards. I don't do the things that you expect me to do. I do what I was called to do. I do what I was made to do. I do what, I, well, no, that's, that's incorrect because Jesus wasn't made. He already preexisted. But listen to me, I do what I was supposed to do. The very reason Jesus was born was to come in and usher in God's will. And so listen, when I say this wholeheartedly, Jesus brings salvation by riding into history and giving what the world cannot offer. And so you may be in a person or a place or a situation right now where you would sit back and go, the world has offered me all kinds of things and yet I still feel empty. I still feel hopeless. I still feel void. I still feel like I don't live with purpose or direction. I don't have meaning. I'm looking for answers and everything else and I'm not gaining satisfaction. And Jesus, listen, when he rides in offering us salvation, he's riding into history to give us what the world cannot. The world can't even offer it let alone give it. The world tries to offer it. Satisfaction in your marriage, if you do all these things, when Jesus says, no, you'll have satisfaction in your marriage, when you do the things I want you to do. Satisfaction in life, when you live out of obedience to Christ, rather than satisfaction in life, when I try and please other people. 
One of the biggest struggles I believe most Christians face right now is the fact that we want to try and please everybody else rather than just pleasing the Lord. Look at what's going on in our current cultural context and ask ourselves as a church, what is our responsibility? And please hear me out on this. Our responsibility is always obedience to Jesus first and foremost. Obedience to the Lord in all things. As a result of obedience to the Lord, I can love other people who don't know him, who have never responded in truth to him. But it doesn't mean, listen, that I change the standard by which Jesus already operates and Jesus lived by. I stick to the standard and I can love people. And listen to me, there are going to be people who you're going to love, even though you're sticking to the standard, who are going to say you're a hateful bigot. Because you hold to a standard that's old. Because you're not willing to change to what the world says we have to offer. And so hear me out when I say this, that those people on the way to Passover were acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah, but then in the next three chapters, those same people are the very people who are going to say, crucify him. Because he's going crazy. He's dared to do things that he should have never done in the first place. Read the Gospels, any of the Gospels, because between chapter 11 in Mark and chapter 15, when Jesus is crucified, all hell breaks loose. I mean, Jesus shows up, and these people are worshiping him in reality. I mean, if you could kind of think about it, that's exactly what happens with downtown Kansas City with the Royals or the Chiefs or any other town. It's what happens when we ooh and ah over popular people and musicians and lose our ever-loving mind just to talk to those people. It's a worship aspect. And these people are running ahead of them. Here comes the Messiah. Here's what's going on. They're throwing down coats. They're throwing down palm branches. And people are behind throwing down coats and throwing down palm branches. And they're excited and pumped because the Savior is here and he's going to deliver us from Roman oppression. And Jesus is like, y'all don't get it. You still don't get it. And so listen, when I say Jesus brings salvation by riding into history and giving what the world cannot offer, I want you to see four things today as we jump through this section. Number one is this, that Jesus is praised by many for their expected deliverance from oppression. And that's exactly what we see. His entry into Jerusalem has been traditionally called the triumphal entry, right? Right? The Messiah is triumphing as he enters in. And by the way, this is only the second incident that all four gospel writers record. All four of them. They record the triumphal entry and all four of them record the miraculous feeding of 5,000. Other than that, they all have a little bit of a different take. But listen, there's this epic celebration that's taking place in Jerusalem, and it's this annual festival that I just talked about celebrating the Passover. And there is something to be said, because here's what happens. Jesus rides in on this colt, this donkey, which doesn't seem like a big deal, unless you understand that this was the prophecy from Hebrew scriptures that the Israelite people would have understand that hundreds of years earlier, over 400 and some years earlier, the prophet Zechariah had written about who had been revealed to him. And it says this in Zechariah chapter nine, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, shout, daughter of Jerusalem, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Zechariah 9. Jesus is coming in and he's doing this and that's what the people are going, woohoo, the Messiah is here. And here's the crazy part. Remember what I said that he does what the world can't or he offers, he gives what the world cannot offer? Remember, the world expected certain things. The Israelite people expected certain things. And Jesus, here's what happens. Jesus challenges the religious establishment. In Mark chapter 11, verse 15, it says this. And I'm going to start actually in verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard him saying that. And it says in verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and he began, listen, driving out those who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of what? Prayer. And it says for this, for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. Listen. When Jesus challenges the religious establishment, Jesus responds to the chaos of what was taking place in the temple courts with frustration and with great anger. And listen, I believe wholeheartedly there's a time and a place for righteous indignation or righteous anger. Jesus was outraged, listen, by the blatant disregard for the temple area, specifically, listen, the part that was set apart for Gentile use as well. For those of you who don't know, that there was an area within the temple that Gentiles were actually allowed to be in, to use, to be a part of, right? But in that area, the Jewish people, the people of Israel had literally turned this idea into a money-making scheme. Almost convincing people, hey, look, you can buy your way into salvation, And so Jesus shows up, and what's he do? He loses his ever-loving mind, right? I mean, imagine this picture of what's taking place. He's in there, and he is ticked. And he starts, I I mean, think about this. You ever been to a garage sale? You got your money box there, you got your cash, a bunch of coins. What if some dude just shows up and starts flipping your tables over? Money's going everywhere. All your product that you got out is going off. And you're, you're going to be like, what the? What the like, I might be half tempted to take you out. You're like, what the heck are you doing, bro? And Jesus walks into the temple. Keep in mind, remember, these people have just been praising him for what he's going to do. Here he is, the son of David, the one who's going to save us. Right? The one that they had just proclaimed blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. You know what they're acknowledging? Jesus is the Messiah. And yet Jesus comes in and he completely flips the religious establishment upside down. To the point where, listen to me, as we jump into this text, you'll see this parable of the tenants in chapter 12. And I would challenge you to go read it where it it talks about how the, the person who owned the land was sending his people back to gather some of the money, some of the product from the 
harvest that had been presented, and every time they would send somebody back, they at first started beating him, and then it got worse and worse and worse until he finally sends his son. And when he sends his son, it says that they destroyed him, they killed him, which is a picture of what's going to take place with Jesus. Because time after time, the God was sending people to warn the people of Israel as, warn, as well as warn the world of the coming Messiah and give them great hope that the Messiah was going to save them. And yet the Messiah shows up and what do people want to do? They're going to destroy him. And so listen, Jesus challenges the religious establishment. And so I believe wholeheartedly one of the things we always have to keep in mind as a church is number one, that we don't make it difficult for people to come and worship Jesus. But number two, that we should always be, listen, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Listen, one of the biggest struggles oftentimes within the church is we gotta schedule everything. Think about this. We like activities, don't we? Matter of fact, as, as, as churches go, and our church is no different, oftentimes what we're very good at is scheduling all kinds of activities, right? It could be men's events, women's events, youth events. It could be all kinds of things that we got going on, marriage activities and, and outreaches and different things like that. But listen, what happens when Jesus says that becomes the priority? Are those things bad? Nope. Was the fact that they were there selling doves so that people could have the sacrifices bad? Nope. But listen to what Jesus says. My house should be called a house of prayer. And here's the struggle. That when those things take place or priority or are primary over us being a church that is built upon the foundation of being a praying church, then what we real, in reality are doing is we're taking the Holy Spirit and kind of saying, here, stay over there. We're going to go over here. We're going to do our thing. And then when we need you, we'll call on you. When the truth of the matter is that we would say, Holy Spirit, you're going to be right here in the dead center. And as we're praying and as we're seeking you, as we're reaching out and calling to you, and we're a house of prayer for all kinds of people, then all of those things that we do come as a result of what? Obedience and prayer. That as we're reaching out to our friends, God, we're praying and we're calling out. We're saying, God, would you give me an opportunity? Will you present those opportunities? God, we know the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. God, grant me the wisdom to speak the words. Let me preach the gospel with great boldness. And when we invite our friends, we experience the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And so when he says this, my house should be called a house of prayer, we have to begin to ask ourselves this question. Are we a people, a family, a house that is a house of prayer? And not just a house of prayer for us, but for all nations. Are you a praying person who prays for those around you who are lost? Do you pray consistently asking the Lord, Lord, give me the wisdom to speak with great boldness and with great truth. God, give me the opportunities that I can share the gospel with those who are far from you. God, give me these people. God, will you grant me the opportunity to do this? Everything we do ought to be covered in prayer first. 
And so listen, Jesus brings salvation by riding into history and giving what the world cannot offer. And what the world cannot offer is simply that right there. The world cannot offer the power of the Holy Spirit because they're not in Jesus. You have the power of the Holy Spirit when you are in Jesus, when you have a relationship with Jesus, when Jesus is first and foremost in your life, when he's sitting on the throne of your heart, when you've acknowledged your sins, that you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. How do I experience the power of the Holy Spirit? But only through a relationship with Jesus. So Jesus challenges the religious establishment. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. There is nothing you can do to get you on the pedestal that you think you need to be on other than to have a relationship with Jesus because Jesus' death on the cross is what paid for you and I to have that opportunity. So Jesus challenges the religious establishment. Number three, Jesus, listen, remembers the Passover and, listen, reveals he's the true Passover lamb. So Jesus shows up to go to the Passover. He's remembering the Passover with people, right? So if you flip in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 22. In Mark 14, starting in verse 22, it says this. While they were eating, what is this eating that it's talking about? It's the Passover meal. They're remembering the Passover meal. So it says, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And then here's the crazy part. He breaks it and he gives it to his disciples and he says this, take this because this is my body. Now hear me out when I say this, right? When he says, take this, he's saying this. It's not, and there's a Catholic teaching out there that this body supernaturally becomes the body of Jesus Christ. No, no. Biblically, what this means is this. Jesus says this, take this because this represents my body. What you celebrate as this Passover meal of unleavened bread to celebrate the Passover lamb, I am now the lamb. I am the lamb who is going to be crucified. And when you take this, when you celebrate Passover now, you're celebrating the crucifixion of me, the broken body, my body for you. So this represents me is what he says. So in the midst of the challenging times, he extends this great truth. As a matter of fact, here's the crazy thing, right? He offers this part and he says, take it, this is my body. Then he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And here's what's crazy about that. If you jump to Mark chapter 12 and you go back to Mark chapter 12, verse 10 and 11, right? This is back to that parable of the tenants. It says this, that the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. That Jesus, when he comes in and says, I am the Passover lamb, He's the capstone of everything that takes place, and yet he's the stone that the builders rejected. And who's the builders? The religious leaders and the teachers. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the ones the people were looking to for answers. Jesus shows up and he's like, listen, that stone that has been rejected, the stone that has been pushed aside is the capstone. And if you know anything about a capstone, the capstone is the primary stone in the foundation of everything that's going to be built in the building. 
is the very thing that if the capstone is set right, that everything else is plumb and square and true, that everything else can be built strong and tall and powerful and has great resource and great energy and great effectiveness. But if the capstone is rejected or pushed aside and they go to another stone, then that building is going to collapse or going to fall. It's not going to have a strong foundation. And so Jesus becomes that capstone who's rejected. And so this bread represents his body. The juice represents his blood. But Jesus is the Passover lamb who has been rejected by some, rejected by so many. And so when we celebrate, we celebrate him as the final sacrifice once and for all for the sins of mankind, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So here it is. Jesus comes riding in, bringing salvation and giving what the world cannot offer. And then number four, listen, in Mark chapter 15, and this is where I challenge you. I, I, I want to I encourage you this week, over this week, matter of fact, you can go into the version. If you have the Bible app, you can go and download the version thing, and they're going to have all kinds of Holy Week uh, reading things, but I challenge you to do this. Go into Matthew, go into Mark, go into Luke, go into John, and you can go right to the end of those books. And read from the time he enters in to Jerusalem till his death and then his resurrection. Read all four of them, all four Gospels this week. And here's what I would venture to say. If you will focus on this and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you, that I believe you will become overwhelmed. I believe you will become more thankful and more grateful I believe wholeheartedly that you would begin to understand this Easter week is a lot more than just a bunch of Easter bunnies, Easter eggs, and a bunch of candy. And I would venture to say this. Even when we try and keep Jesus foremost, sometimes we let it become about something else. But as we jump in and we think about Good Friday and everything that goes on with the darkness and the destruction, the attacking, the the brutality of Jesus' crucifixion, and then the silence after Jesus dies, that there's silence, but yet the temple veil was torn. And in the midst of that, all of a sudden, everybody's like, what the heck is going on? The disciples are running into hiding, afraid of what's gonna happen to them. They're not sure what just happened because the very person they were following who they thought was going to deliver them from Roman oppression is now dead. And they're like, what are we gonna do? Who are we going to run to? Who's going to lead? lead, lead? We, don't, we don't know what we're going to do. And Jesus rises again. And the church was born. And the church, if you jump in and read the book of Acts, explodes. Because the very one, listen, who rode in offering salvation, offering the very thing that the world could not offer, gives their life purpose and meaning. So listen, number four is this. If Jesus brings salvation by riding into history and giving what the world cannot offer, we have to understand this, that Jesus died a torturous death. Look at Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 25. And it says this. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews... They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those 
who passed by, keep in mind, those who passed by hurled insults at him. Who are the ones that passed by? The very ones who three days before were throwing, or six days before, were throwing their coats and palm branches down on the ground to celebrate the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, had shown up. And now it's the same people who are throwing insults and casting insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so, you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, right? They're keeping in mind this physical temple that we were just talking about. If that's the truth that you were going to destroy this temple, then come down from the cross and save yourself. And in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, right? From demonic possession, from blindness, from death. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, and trust me, they're not acknowledging him as the Messiah. They're just kind of, poking jabs. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Listen, here's the great news or the great story. It says they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And we talk about Jesus' torturous death in the mocking fashion, the people who needed Jesus' salvation are the same people who killed him. But listen, what was set up to be a celebration of delivery from slavery becomes the death of the Messiah and the deliverance from slavery to sin for all who believe. Jesus was crucified between two thieves, two robbers. And if you go on and read other sections in Luke, it tells us that one robber was casting the insults and the defamation stuff at him and saying, yeah, why don't you get yourself and get us off the cross? Right? But the other, the other, and I love how this other one plays out because the other one, he acknowledges and he calls out to Jesus in Luke And he says, let me flip over there, sorry. My bookmark came out. And he says this, remember me. Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise. Listen, Jesus dared to break the mold the expectation of many is calling us to leap or to take a leap of faith. The expectation of many is to say, you don't need that mess. You don't need Jesus. You don't need all that. We got all kinds of things to offer you. That's the expectation of the world. But remember, the world can't offer what Jesus came to offer. The world cannot offer what Jesus offers through his salvation, through his death, burial, and resurrection to save you and I from our sins. It can't offer that. No matter what you do, no matter how good you think you are, you are still, according to Scripture, unrighteous, unholy, that all of your good things that you think you do, your righteousness is like filthy rags. And if that's the case, then there is nothing you can do to have salvation other than, listen, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. One robber in Luke's gospel hurls insults, And the other says to Jesus, remember me. On his deathbed, remember me. And Jesus said, listen, today you will be with me in paradise. 
Here's my question. Have you called on Jesus? Jesus, remember me. Or do you hurl insults at him? That's the reality of what this comes down to because Jesus, listen again, one more time, brings salvation by riding into history and giving what the world cannot offer. Do we settle for what the world offers or do we acknowledge and admit and call out, Jesus, remember me. Jesus, forgive me. And the crazy thing about it I think about this all the time when Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. See, as we come into a time where we're gonna play, I'm gonna have the band go ahead and come on up. And I wanna encourage you, if you did not receive this or if you need to grab one right back here on the tables in the back, we're gonna do the Lord's Supper together. And I want you to think about this as we talk about the good news of the gospel, as we think about what Jesus offers and offering us life and life more abundantly, is that this body, this bread that we are to, to partake, and I'm gonna challenge you because this is a challenge. <laughs> you might have to have a doctorate to get this thing open. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna look like a crazy guy up here. Maybe, at some point, I might get my pocket knife out. I'll just eat the whole thing together. Anybody else have any problems with this? <laughs> Don't mess with your pastor. I got a pocket knife. <laughs> Here we go. Listen, as we, as we do this, as you think about this, as we understand and acknowledge what this means, I, I want to challenge you with this, is that we never take this lightly, right? That this is a serious time. The Bible says as often as you do this, that you're doing it in remembrance of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. That if you have a problem with anyone, if there's any sin in your life, that you confess that sin before you partake of this because otherwise you confess or you drink judgment upon yourself. But think about this. When he talked about this in Mark chapter 12, right? They're getting ready. They're partaking in the Passover and Jesus says to them, this is my body, or sorry, Mark chapter 14, take this, this is my body. And when we do this, we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us, that he paid the price for us. Do this in remembrance of me. And he says in verse 24, this is the blood of the covenant. Now keep in mind what we understand. The Old Testament covenant was the lamb. And that lamb would be sacrificed and that blood would cover over the sins of the people of Israel. But listen, when Jesus comes, it's no longer covering over the sins of Israel, but it's a washing away. They're gone. As far as the east is from the west, they're separated out. They're, they're forgotten, they're moved on. And so when you do this, when you drink this, you're acknowledging, listen, that you believe that the blood of Jesus washes you and cleanses you of all sin. And so you proclaim, not only that, but you're proclaiming his resurrection. So he says that, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom. That we, together, when we do this, we do this, we take part in the blood in remembrance of Jesus. 
And here's what it says. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and then they were acknowledging or they were on their way to Jesus' crucifixion. So here's how we're going to close in a very simple way. We're going to close with a song. And as we close with the song, I want to encourage you with this. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, you got to let somebody know today. If you're online, you're watching online, you can text us. Just text the word Jesus to 816-877-9295, and we would love to get in contact with you. If you're a person here in, in church, what we're going to encourage you to do is to come up and talk to me. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk with you about it. But if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, now's the time because Jesus offers what the world cannot. Father, we pray today that you would work in our lives, that if there's somebody out there who has not ever responded to you and made you king, to make you the first, the one that sits on the throne of their heart, that they would do that today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.